Well, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Be reading verses 1 through 7. So please attend to the hearing of God's inspired, infallible, perfectly preserved word. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to continue looking into it. Uh, would you guide my lips now as we look into these verses and these uh, clauses and individual words of Romans, a letter written so long ago, but you have saved it for us that we might be challenged and encouraged and that we would grow in faith in Christ's likeness. May that be the case even this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is with excitement and as well a measured amount of trembling that I begin this sermon series on Paul's epistle to the Romans. It goes without saying that it is a grand letter. One writer has called it the chief book of the New Testament, the purest gospel. He writes that it deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, that's a good project, memorizing the book, but to be the subject of his meditation day by day, the daily bread of his soul. The more time one spends on it, the more precious it becomes and the better it appears. I take that challenge to heart. Another writer says, Romans is a comprehensive statement of evangelical doctrine. No book of scripture comes so near to being a body of divinity, that is to say, a full encompassing work of Christian theology. And then one more, this epistle is the cathedral of the Christian faith, which is to say a place we enter in and gaze with wonder and awe and meet God, right? Well, hundreds of books have been written on it by the ablest of theologians, pastors, and teachers throughout the centuries. My intention here is obviously not to uh, be exhaustive of every detail, to solve every riddle, though there are some to be entered into. Uh, I do plan to take this slow, to not rush through it. Um, I haven't mapped out how many sermons this is gonna be. Um, I don't know when the next in this series even will be. Uh, the next clause might be in 2023. So uh, we will see how this journey progresses. Uh, I seek to follow John Calvin's advice. He is quoted as saying that the task of the expounder is lucid brevity. So lucid, which is to say clear, easy to understand, and brevity, obviously, concise, not wordy, no need to be excessive and indulge your time. And I also don't want to be novel in any of my interpretations. We're sticking, seeking to stick to the old paths, right? Uh, the Word of God is not new for our generation. It is preserved for us, of course, uh, but we walk cautiously as we look into God's Word. If we come up with something new and novel, that's a warning signal. <laughs> so you can measure me by teachers of the past, uh, by other apostles even, who looked to Paul's writing. 
uh, I would greatly appreciate your prayers uh, to that end in terms of uh, seeing God's wisdom here of the ages. Uh, it's my goal whenever I'm assigned uh, to preach before you, perhaps on the Monday preceding, to put a little note out in uh, Discord to give you a fair heads up. You know, this is the exact text. Could you be praying for me? I'd also encourage you to be uh, reading through the book. Um, I've made a project these last few months since I decided to begin this series to just read through Romans as many times as I could. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Bible reading plan. I believe it's the MacArthur method, John MacArthur out in California, that for a whole month you just read through one book over and over again. Next month you move on to the next book. Um, so perhaps in the week ahead of the times where I'm preaching through Romans, uh, either with your families and family worship or personally, just read through it. Uh, have what that first quote which by the way was from Luther, uh, Martin Luther, uh, that we would know it word for word, just have it seeping down into our minds and hearts. Also, uh, as you'll see in the handouts that I prepared today, that I checked that everybody has at least one, it is my intention to give you a more detailed sermon outline that I have in the past. Uh, there are differences in learning style, differences in uh, philosophies of note-taking and sermon outline uh, composition, uh, but what I'm gonna do, at least for a while here, and certainly open to your feedback, is to try to be really detailed. So what I captured there on the front page is intended to be almost every reference I'm gonna make, uh, every little summary, so you don't have to be furiously, if you're one of those note-taking people, uh, furiously writing that down. You can focus on the other things that are unique to you. So rather than having to note the scripture, well, what is my response to that scripture? What is the Holy Spirit saying to me as uh, Elder Elliot just read that? Um, and again, let me know how that is useful to you. And then on the back side, there'll be additional information. On the back side today is a number of outlines from other writers, and uh, I'll make a brief note about that structure in a moment. And so those are just uh, study aids for you as you discuss this sermon with your family, as you pursue your personal study, as you are reading through this book in weeks and months to come. I pray that all will be helpful to you. So as you can see from your sermon outline, that's part one of the introduction. Got a multi-part introduction here. Uh, the introduction to this study, uh, which uh, is going to be extending into the future. Second, I want to comment briefly on an introduction to the book itself. So looking at those outlines on the back side, uh, in terms of uh, an overall summary of the Book of Romans, I definitely refer you to Pastor Kaiser's sermon back in June of 2020 as he was working his way through each book of the Bible. Uh, I concur with his general uh, two-fold interpretive structure. Uh, and on the back of your page there, you'll see some two-point as well as some three-fold, three-point structures. Uh, the first person, portion is generally, there's a broad consensus, really helpful when most people agree on these big points. The broad consensus is that the first portion of the epistle, Paul in chapters one through 11, is setting forth the gospel, obviously with an emphasis on justification by faith. Then the second portion, he gives the implications or the applications of the gospel. Whether you create a third section of verses nine through 11, or whether you see, sorry, chapters nine through 11, or whether you see chapters nine through 11 as a subset of that first uh, section, I don't know, Maybe it's just semantics. I think I tend maybe towards a, a, a two and a half point view. You know, we talk in church government about two office and three office, and then people start talking about two and a half office. So we can fudge it a little bit, and maybe I lean in the direction of uh, two and a half divisions here. Uh, but suffice it to say, the emphasis 
at the beginning is on the gospel. And then, as Paul so often does in his epistles, he transitions to, what does this mean? How do we live in light of these great truths? And we'll see that in the months ahead. But common to all of these outlines is a very important part, and it'll be a number of weeks down the road. But in chapter one, verses 16 and 17, that that is the theme statement, uh, the thesis, so to speak. If he was writing a uh, paper to be graded by a teacher, you gotta have your thesis statement, right? What is your main point? And it is in verses 16 and 17. The heart of the gospel, the heart of this epistle, the heart of the Christian cathedral, as uh, I think it was French writer Godet said, today, is justification by faith. So keep that in mind. All of this rotates, orbits, as it were, around those verses in chapter one, verses 16 and 17. Well, with those two parts of the introduction to the series, to the book itself, now briefly, introduction to today's sermon. I wanna begin at the beginning, really just with the word Paul. See if we can be lucidly brief on one word, Paul. I want to pull together some biographical information uh, from other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, to have us understand uh, who is it that, as you see continuing in verse one, he self-describes himself as a bondservant, as a called one, as an apostle, as one separated. So who is this Paul that God was doing this work in? Paul is without a doubt one of, if not the most preeminent Christians of all time. So let us this morning get to know him a little better with these several things in view. That Paul was dead in sin, he was made alive, and he lived his life for the Lord. Or as you can see on your outlines, organizing that under the points of Paul before conversion, his actual conversion, and then his life after the conversion. So the key point is that contrary to how uh, the flesh, our world, or the devil would convince us to try to have it, Paul was not a self-made man, right? He was fighting against God, we'll shortly see, when he was following his own thoughts and intents. Rather, he was, we must all be, a God-remade man, right? We can't make ourselves. We can't change our hearts. Leopard can't change his spots. We know all these verses. But let's live this out as we see how God sort of forced, <laughs> uh, coerced, impelled Paul to live it out. He was not a self-made man. He was a God-remade man. So with all of that said, let us get into the text. And just for formality's sake, I'll reread our preaching portion. Paul, just Paul. Who was this Paul? And we will be flipping around a number of spots, especially in Acts. So several instances uh, where Paul brought up his past as well as the um, narrators of scripture uh, talked about his past. Let's begin first with his self-testimony. If you wanna turn with me to Acts chapter 22. And as I have uh, cited there, verses three through five. Let me read that for you. So he's here uh, addressing the Jerusalem mob. Remember, he's asked questions, stirring up all these interests. People were about to kill him on the spot. And addressing them, he says, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictest of our father's law, 
and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So he lays out very candidly, <coughs> pardon me, uh, the way he had behaved not that long before. Uh, he had, as he gives the biographical details here, referring to his birth location, uh, where he spent his uh, formative years in this city, which would be Jerusalem, who his teacher was, Gamaliel, a uh, person that they all knew and were familiar with. Uh, other places, we'll see he talks about uh, being within the Pharisee school. He identifies with these people who are zealous by saying, I was zealous toward the God as you all are today. So he's painting a very clear picture of who he was by way of upbringing, by way of his intentions. And then in chapter 23, sort of second part of this interaction, uh, recall that the uh, Roman, um, not general, commander, uh, seeing he was about to be killed, is able to rescue him from that mob, and then is like, so what's going on here? Uh, tell me what the situation is. Why are these people so aggressive towards you? Uh, and then he has a hearing before the uh, chief priests and the ruling council here in chapter 23. And I'll just read verse six. When Paul perceived that one part, again, this is one part of the ruling council and the teachers, when one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So there, at the very least, we learn he's a second generation Pharisee. Uh, his father had been within this religious sect or this division of Judaism as well. And then turn with me to chapter 26, also in Acts. I want to read all of 1 through 12. Maybe just 4 through 11. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why would it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." So this is a third uh, interview uh, of sorts here before two rulers, King Agrippa and Festus, where he's, uh, with a bit more calm audience, able to get into a little more detail. So from this, we learn, again, he uh, was raised amongst the sect of the Pharisees. He thought he was adhering to the promise of the 12 tribes. Uh, he did many things 
They're a, a pretty broad summary. He even says many things against Jesus and his people uh, in Jerusalem. So here he's giving the venue where he did this persecution. In Jerusalem and elsewhere, he put Christians in prison. He voted to condemn them, verse 10, and he compelled them to blaspheme, verse 11. Uh, some writers, as I did study on this, see in these statements an effort by Paul to kind of explain away, uh, to pass the buck even a little bit, they think, uh, his actions. They see him as sort of strategically trying to gain sympathy. Uh, save his skin is really his goal, they think. Uh, I do agree that he was trying to build connections. In the earlier passage, I noticed how he said, just like you are zealous and eager, so was I. That's a good method to try and put others in your shoes, put your yourself in others' shoes. So I do believe and would agree he was trying to build connections, trying to build sympathy with them, but I do not see that he was explaining away his own problems, his own actions, or blame shifting. Notice how blunt and candid he is. In this passage and the previous ones I already read, the number of times he uses the personal pronoun, I, I did these things, I harassed them, I persecuted them. When they were murdered, I did this and this. He even admits to personally acting out of rage. That is very humble. It's very honest. And I think only somebody trying to find something clever or some way to uh, impugn the character of a man of God uh, would look for other solutions. So, lesson there being all these biographical details that Paul very honestly relates, and they are consistent throughout these accounts. Let's also turn over to Galatians 1. So a very different occasion. Obviously, these were a public environment where he's being attacked verbally. He's giving an answer somewhat on the fly in those first instances. Certainly, uh, the interview with Festus and Agrippa, he had time to prepare and think more. But here, different from those, in Galatians chapter 1, he's got time to sit down, uh, pen to paper, and think about how does he want to express this. So rather a sort of formal biographical history lesson, we see it more condemned and, and sort of I'm oh, sorry, uh, more uh, condensed and worded in terms of the ideas as opposed to the events. In Galatians chapter 1, reading 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So again, consistent recounting of the details. He, saying he was a, a zealous Jew, he was trying to follow the teachings he'd been brought up in, and he persecuted. He tried to take down God's people. So every part of this picture, from his own tongue in the previous stories, from his own pen in this instance, is consistent. Paul is honest about his history. He's forthcoming about what he did and using words that we'll see here shortly that reveal his own sin. He had been fighting against God. Let us turn now to not just his description of events, because of course the Bible can accurately recount what somebody else is saying, even when what they're saying is wrong, right? It doesn't impugn the truth of the Bible when it accurately records a falsehood. But let us turn to the Bible narrator also in Acts, if you turn with me to chapter 7, and we'll continue into 8 and 9. So here we have the inspired pen giving his own, that is the Holy Spirit's own perspective on these events. So at the very end of chapter 7, 
verse 58. For context, uh, this is uh, this long speech, uh, compelling speech by Stephen, uh, presenting a very moving and powerful, uh, very instructive history lesson on Jewish history, on redemptive history, only to meet with the full, forceful brunt of Jewish anger their vehement hate towards him. And note that these are called brethren and fathers. That's how he started his speech, is saying brethren and fathers. For him to respectfully start that way, and we see where the story ends, is fascinating. But at verse 58, the narrator makes a passing comment that those who participated in Stephen's execution, quote, laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we learn, of course, you all are familiar, Saul is Paul. Several verses later, beginning chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. So again, these are very sort of tossed in their phrases. Obviously, seeds planted uh, that we see later uh, when Paul is uh, converted, and we'll get to that shortly. But just by way of passing comments, these are highly instructive. I understand that phrase, Saul was consenting to his death, to be a summary of Saul's attitude and activities in the preceding events. It's not that he guarded their clothes and also agreed in some form with the actions of the mob, but rather that by guarding their clothes, he was consenting to. He was involved in this whole thing of which one part was the guarding of their clothes. Uh, The Greek word here conveys the meaning of collaborative effort. Thus, he is part of that collaborative effort. To consent in this way is not to singly or individualistically think, oh, I agree with that, you know, as if somebody's voting for a political party and is like, okay, in the privacy of my mind and in the privacy of the voting booth, I'm gonna check the box in that column. No, this is somebody who's out on the campaign trail, right? They're planting yard signs. They're involved in the whole project, not individualistically, aloofly agreeing with it. So he is in league with them. That's what the Greek word here means. While the text doesn't explicitly say that Paul threw a stone, by this word we learn that he was in agreement with them and essentially acted in concert with them. And of course, as you're tying these dots together in your own minds, this agrees with the testimony that we read a moment ago from chapter 26, where he admitted that he voted to condemn Christians, that he punished them, that he persecuted them, That's exactly what happened with Stephen here, right? He may not there be referring to Stephen exactly. He could be referring to some other very similar or identical instance. So we do know that he did things like what happened to Stephen. And here in the story, we see that he was consenting, he was agreeing, he was involved with his death, his persecution. Saul actively agreed with the events that occurred with Stephen. And then chapter 9. Verse 1 again. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This also agrees with Paul's explanation, right? So we're seeing here, just to make it abundantly clear, the inspired narrator who knew absolutely what happened and often why, revealing people's motivations, is telling what Paul did, went to the high priest, and how and why he did it, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And this is identical with what Paul himself admitted to. In his own explanation, he said that he pursued Christians in Jerusalem and foreign cities. So in verse 2, we read here, he asked letters from him, that is the high priest, 
to the synagogues of Damascus. That would be the foreign lands. So he's done these persecutions in Jerusalem, and he admitted to, and here we see evidence of him taking that on the road to Jerusalem. And note that specific word translated in our English as murder there in verse one. This is the same word used in other texts in the New Testament, like Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, and adulteries. Uh, Luke 23, 25, he released to them one whom they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. Uh, This is not some casual death that happened. This is purposeful killing that is a sin. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, the root of the word used there for the English, either thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder, is a is a, a root from which this word is derived as well. So this is sinful killing that the inspired writer here of Acts 9.1 is saying that Paul was involved in. But Paul didn't hide that either, right? He admitted to killing and persecution. So the Holy Spirit pulls no punches. Paul, being honest in his own testimony, holds nothing back. Saul was a sinner. Heinous crimes even. So as a summary of this whole phase of his life, as we see it in Acts and briefly there in Galatians, this does paint quite a bleak picture of Saul, of Paul, the future apostle. But it's a background that really then, by way of contrast, highlights and makes him all the more amazing, a trophy of God's grace. Because those who are sick don't have need of a physician, right? That's uh, Matthew 9, 12. Paul didn't know it at the time, here in these early chapters of Acts, he didn't know he was sick. Often we don't either until there's some outward sign. The temperature, the runny nose, right? That's when God really finally tells us, you're sick. In terms of our heart, we often go on not realizing how sick we are until God meets us, sometimes very abruptly, as we'll see here shortly. So he was sick unto death, but thanks be to God, he didn't leave Saul in that state. So let's move on to the second section here, Paul's conversion. And again, we have Paul's self-testimony and the Bible narrator's record, both inspired, both inerrant, and they corroborate perfectly. So first, the historical record from Acts. We're already at chapter nine in Acts, and so a few verses later. I'll read verses three through eight. As he, that is Paul, Saul, journeyed, He came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Dramatic conversion story, to say the least. Right? This is kind of the archetype of what does it look like when God really hits you over the head and saves somebody. Uh, It's not meant, though, to be the standard by which all conversions should be measured. Don't want anybody here to think, oh, mine wasn't so interesting as this, or I didn't have a light, or I didn't have a voice. 
I didn't fall off any horse. Um, that's okay. Um, maybe for the best. Uh, the key thing is, what's the result of God working in your life, right? But this story here does inform us of how normal it is. So this is the normal portion. How normal it is for one that previously did not recognize, love, or truly serve Jesus to all of a sudden have a complete turn, right? All of a sudden, a completely different relationship with Jesus. At the first, he's persecuting him. And later, he simply asks, so what do I do? Now I know who you are, what do I do? He gives an instruction and he does it. That's a heart made willing to follow the Lord. Clearly, Jesus came after Paul. Jesus made him willing. Jesus sent then friends to minister to him. So let's continue to uh, verses 17 and 18 where we see what happened when Jesus heeded that command to arise and go into the city. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter nine. Ananias went his way and entered the house. So recall, and I skipped those few verses, but Jesus also appears to Ananias and tells him what to do and their paths meet. So Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. As I read through this, the most powerful part to me is for him to say brother. Right? In those preceding verses, Ananias says, Lord, I'm seeing you in this vision. I've heard of Saul. He's the one breathing fire and killing the brethren. You want me to go to him? And the Lord says, yes. So he does. Next scene for him to call this man who, you know, the proverbial five minutes earlier, he was deathly afraid of, for him to say, brother, brother. Those who were fighting, who were killing each other or running away from he who was trying to kill you, to be calling him brother and to receive that brotherly affection at his hands and then to be baptized. A beautiful picture of that reconciliation between men within the church, picturing then the reconciliation between man and God. Let's turn now to Paul's self-testimony. And there are other instances here. Obviously, I'm not being exhaustive in my study of the biblical record on Paul's conversion. But let's turn to Paul's self-testimony. Over in Acts 22, one instance verses 6 through 16. And it's interesting, Pastor Duff, doing that communion meditation on Jesus being the light, and obviously a central feature of, G of uh, Paul's conversion is the light that's shown, blinding him for a time. But here at uh, chapter 22, and I'll read verses 6 through 16. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Just note, it's noon. It's already light, and yet there's a greater light that overwhelms the noon. But anyway, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. 
Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So again, that was Ananias speaking to Saul. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. There's the next verse that I stopped short of last time, which again, a different context. Paul, more reflective, not verbally speaking to others, but here in Galatians 1, writing it down, giving a very compact summary of these experiences, says to his friends in Galatia, and I'll read 15 to 16. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. When we come back to the later clauses of Romans 1, we're going to look at this idea of calling and of separation. Uh, unto God, that is uh, captured here in Galatians, also in Romans 1.1. But for now, notice verse 16, those words, reveal his son in me. So note that it can be translated either way. Uh, The Greek word there, in or to, uh, can work either direction. And uh, this is one of those cases where more literally, based on the structure, it's in. But it's not like we're choosing massively different paths that have different meanings if we go left or right. To reveal in speaks of Paul being equipped to show forth Christ's atonement in his life and work, right? So for Christ to be revealed in Paul was so that when others heard him and saw him, they would see Christ, and that would be the effectiveness of his ministry. To reveal to him speaks of Paul coming to see Jesus for who he really was. So you can see in his conversion experience, Christ was both revealed to him, oh, you're the Lord, not a false Messiah, right? So he had a revelation of who Jesus really was, but also Jesus was revealed in him as he went forward in his ministry. So they're very much connected. Paul could not teach others about Jesus if he himself did not know him. And this is a sad thing when we think of ministers and various pseudo-Christian cults. They think they are revealing Jesus to people. They think Jesus has been revealed to them, but it's a false Jesus. They have a false revelation and they're passing on that false revelation. We can only reflect to others that which we ourselves see. We can only pour out to others that with which we have been filled. So having had the Son of God revealed to him, the Son of God was revealed in him, which segues nicely to his life after conversion, that revealing out process, as we might um, term it. And as I put in your outlines, there's uh, two aspects, or really three, sorry. Uh, His life as a missionary, his life as a writer, and then just broadly speaking, a courageous, and I could add other descriptive words there, diligent, persistent, um, tenacious Christian. So a missionary, a writer, and then a mature Christian. Maybe just put in mature there as it summarizes all those virtues. So let's look first at his life after conversion as a missionary. And I'm not gonna read these passages that I put in your outline there, but just to reveal or uh, refer to them. Uh, As a missionary, he traveled hundreds and hundreds 
and hundreds of miles. And this was not with uh, four-wheel drive Land Rovers in Africa, as we hear of the trials of missionaries tra crossing Africa now, but this is a you know, David Livingston type of trekking across Africa without uh, the means of modern transport. Uh, there were roads by God's providence. Uh, the Roman government had built these roads that did facilitate um, transportation and commerce and such, but this is different <laughs> than we would understand roads. This is not a two-lane smoothish uh, road that we can pass along easily. There were all sorts of perils. So he traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles by land. He also, by sea, uh, we think of by sea on these massive cruise ships, right? I've never done a cruise, but I see news stories how massive these boats are. <clears throat> Trevor Tyler knows it's a lot easier to go under the waves than on them. And, uh, but he was on them too much peril, uh, as we read in Acts and elsewhere. Uh, these events, of course, are recorded in the various missionary journeys. Uh, there were several. So he visited new places, he planted churches, and then he moved on. Left some people behind to shepherd those churches, uh, moved on to new places to repeat the process. Often he returned to those places he had been previously uh, to check in on them and to encourage them. And that is the life of a missionary, an evangelist, a church planter, and a mentor of other pastors. Also referring you to those verses I put in your outline in Colossians, Timothy, and Titus. What I'm trying to emphasize there is the relationships he developed with these people. Uh, with Timothy, his son in the faith. With Titus, his son in the faith. In Colossians, uh, my mind's blanking on who he refers to there, but it's just some other person that he's like, I left you there. Press on in the faith. God's blessings to you. So he traveled with these other men, often dropping them off, leaving them to continue the work that had begun while he moved on to other spots. Uh, he kept in touch with these men through these letters uh, to teach and to encourage them in their ministries. And he really poured out his heart to them. He invested his life in them. But turning to his writing, obviously, <clears throat> and this is what I'm referring to in your outline with all the books of the Bible he wrote, all those citations. Those are all the Paul, an apostle of God, etc., and so forth, his greeting in the letters. So he is the most uh, prevalent writer in the New Testament. Uh, I didn't add up you know, the number of pages or Greek words that he penned, but the sheer number of books that he penned is more than any other writer. Um, I'm starting to think that John has more Greek words because if you put Revelation with the epistles and the gospel, that's more. But in terms of number of books, number of letters that are in our canon, Paul is preeminent. But not everything he wrote was canonical, right? Um, not, everything, not everything I write do you hear, right? Pastor Kaiser writes hundreds of pages. He writes thousands of emails a year to people seeking uh, advice and explanations of scripture and a small fraction of that goes into his sermons into his commentaries. Uh, so any theologian, especially somebody as widely traveled as Paul the Apostle, is gonna be communicating with people, but a very, very small fraction of that enters into scripture. Um, we know of several letters he did write of a theological nature, even to uh, churches, so it would have been of a very similar form as what we have, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, they were useful for that time. Coming from the apostle, they were to be listened to, they were to be respected, but the Holy Spirit in his eternal wisdom has decided it's not useful for the churches of the centuries. By here I refer to some of the letters referred to in First and Second Corinthians, that aren't first and second Corinthians. Also in his letter to Colossians, he speaks of reading the church written to Laodicea. And so he wrote to other churches and 
you know, church, he wrote to church B, and church A was to read church B's letter, but that, church, that letter to church B is not in our Bible. So just be aware. Paul wrote a lot. He had a lot to say under the guidance of godly wisdom, but not all of it do we have preserved. Not all of it was canonical. Coming to this last section, <clears throat> could go on and on as well. I've referred to numerous Christian virtues that Paul so well represents. And for this, I actually want to pull up a verse that Pastor Duff referred to and quoted part of, <clears throat> yeah, I think in your prayer, or was it your communion meditation, Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 18 to 24. <clears throat> so Acts 20, 18 to 24. So, verse 17, from Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus." to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And it's, uh, as I referenced in your outline in 2 Corinthians 11, we hear about the many trials that he faced. Sea, land, sword, etc., over and over again. And I can't imagine, you know, the disease, the lack of health care, the weather, all of those things, and the persecution, obviously, uh, amongst all of that. But he pressed on. He was courageous. He was diligent. He knew his goal as stated here, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, and he pressed on faithfully. So let me conclude <clears throat> with a few uh, key applications for us. Obviously, none of us is the Apostle Paul, and I don't want you to come away from this thinking, that's a bummer, you know, I'm no good, etc. It's okay, and it's even good that we aren't. <laughs> but we need to be, well, you need to be you, right? You're not Paul. I'm not Paul. You are the you that God made you to be. So each of us needs to be the one that God has made us to be in Christian maturity. So with that as a general principle, how do I take Paul's life and apply it to me? I'm not Paul. I'm not going to be Paul. I didn't have his upbringing. I didn't have his conversion experience. I'm not living in the same time. Well, it's exactly. <laughs> that was then. He is him. This is now. And you are you. But these three applications, as I uh, briefly stated them in your outlines. First, how do we look at our life apart from Christ, right? He had his life apart from Christ. We have ours. Paul's early life shows that people with, even if they have an active religion, aren't necessarily regenerate. I don't want to question anybody's salvation here. I'm not causing people to think, oh, you know, am I not saved? Well, maybe slightly. That type of reflection can be healthy. I'm not calling for a morbid introspection. But to know, as you interact with family who are, are um, dedicated in their religion, as you meet people in your workplaces and grocery stores who appear diligent in their religion, they may not be saved. 
Outward appearances don't tell the truth. God knows the heart. Some unbelievers live profanely, and it's really easy to see. He doesn't love the Lord. He's totally not following God's law. Other unbelievers live legalistically and self-righteously. That would be Paul. And apart from God knowing their heart, we don't know. Either way, <clears throat> that life is, so again, either way, whether live profanely or live legalistically and outwardly looking good, either way, that life is spiritually dead and no amount of human effort is going to change that. No amount of well-said words by an evangelist, no amount of let me share this book, right? Human effort can't change a heart. God's spirit does. God's spirit changed Paul's heart. God's spirit is still working today and he can be working in our lives. So whether <clears throat> we as young child here or uh, young adults or mature adults, older adults, uh, facing life's challenges, facing life's temptations, we need to re be reminded Outward conformity is not what God is desiring. Inward heart change, inward heart motivation toward him that then results in godly actions is what he desires. Second, as I wrote here, we all have a conversion story, whether converted young or old. So again, to emphasize variation, right? God made all sorts of flowers of the field. He made all sorts of different peoples and personalities and communication styles and degrees of demonstrativeness or reservedness, and that variety is good. No two stories will be identical. And I'd encourage you to take time to ponder how the Lord's sovereign grace has operated in your life. Now, this was part of what we spoke of in, I can't remember, it was in the second uh, Great Commission Readiness Workshop about uh, preparing your testimony. How do you give testimony to somebody else in a gospel conversation? So ponder, Lord, how did you work in my life? Am I taking something for granted? Have I missed some key fact about what you did for me so that I can praise you better, that I can share with others more effectively? So reflect on what is your conversion story, whether young and old. It may be that, wow, praise the Lord, I have always known that you were the creator God, the sovereign ruler, and came in the person of Jesus Christ to atone for my sins. I've always known that. Well, good. Practice telling others about that and show uh, due appreciation. Or you were converted at age 18 or 25 or uh, 55. Uh, doesn't matter. We all have our conversion story and let us praise God for it and appreciate his work in and through it. And thirdly, as I wrote it here, now is our opportunity to live for Christ. As I study these passages, uh, and I, I don't know how subjective this was, it is subjective, actually. I can't point to any particular words. Uh, I sensed a tinge of remorse in Paul's writing. He knew that he had severely hurt Christians, that he was fighting against God. Uh, he truthfully came to terms with that history. And then, by God's grace, he moved forward, right? So I would encourage you, if there's things in your past weighing on you, take it to the throne of grace. That's where we obtain mercy, right? Not in trying to bear the burden ourselves, not in trying to hide it, not in trying to just do better next time. That's not where we find mercy. If there's things in your past weighing on you, take it to the throne of grace. That's the only solution. Uh, it's Shakespeare who said past is prologue. By that he means the past leads up to the future. 
we don't, as Pastor Kaiser has taught us about memorials from Joshua, we don't just cut it off, not gonna remember that anymore, done, moving on. We can remember the past, we can learn from the past, and acknowledge that the past brings us to the future, yesterday's future is today's present. So, the family, the childhood, the training, friendships, religious instruction, all of that that you've had in the past is used by God to craft you into a unique person now, which is leading you to the you-ness that will be tomorrow and a year from now and 10 years from now. And that is all a good process. So, to conclude, done, done. May we today, and in the future installments of this series, experience, friends, times of refreshing as we recognize God working in our lives, as we see how God worked in Paul's life, as he hoped that he would be working in the lives of the saints in Rome, and that we would see times of refreshing in our families, our congregation, in this city, in this county, just on and on, right? We know the rubric in Acts about... um, to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Sorry, I'm forgetting part of it. The whole point being the gospel's going out like the rivers of water flowing under the temple door. The gospel is going out. Let us take in the gospel so it can overflow from us out to others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, uh, for a humble man that you uh, gifted and poured that humility into him that it might overflow in his writings and his testimony uh, throughout the church, through the ages, and even in our day, Lord. May we see that same grace in our lives. I thank you for each person here, for your good work in their lives. I pray that no soul in this building, uh, no soul on the role of this church would be untouched by your saving grace, by your continuing sanctifying grace, uh, that there would be profound impact in individual lives, that there would be triumph over temptation and sin, that there would be putting off the old man in all of its lusts, and that there would be the new man that Paul so beautifully speaks of in the chapters later in this book. May we follow hard after you and grow and glorify you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.